Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. We recognize our obligation as settlers on this land to work to repair the harms perpetrated upon Indigenous communities and acknowledge the ongoing trauma colonialism has inflicted and continues to inflict on First Nations, Métis, and Indigenous peoples. Thank you for listening and for donating. Your support allows us to continue to celebrate and spotlight great writing and important ideas. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and I know wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. My guest today is journalist, author, editor, and professor Amitava Kumar. Born in Ara, India, he now lives in Poughkeepsie, where he is the Helen D. Lockwood Professor of English at Vassar College. His latest publication, A Time Outside This Time, straddles the line between memoir, fiction, reportage, essay, and history. Publisher describes it as a blistering novel about a writer's creative response to the daily onslaught of fake news, memory, and the ways in which truth gives over to fiction. Joseph O'Neill says, This brilliant, anguished novel offers an essential vantage point to our agitated and bewildering world. Ayad Akhtar calls it an absorbing portrait of an inspired artist in the midst of our maddening cultural moment. Here's my conversation with Amitabha Kumar on his new novel, A Time Outside This Time. I've just finished your remarkable novel, A Time Outside This Time. And um, I guess I want to start with the premise. You know, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite lines from, from way back is, is uh, and I'm probably paraphrasing badly, but it's Henry Miller with the, uh, if I lie a bit now and again, it's mainly in the interest of truth, which I always loved. And so I want, let's just start with, tell, tell me a little bit of time outside this time. Yeah, I, I, I began to think, as a novelist, I began to think, what is the role of fiction? What can fiction do when we are surrounded by the fiction called fake news? I don't think we could pretend to keep writing in the same form, telling stories. I think I decided that one had to tell stories while commenting on the business of telling stories, especially on the business of telling stories where stories were being told in bad faith by our politicians and by people, trolls on Twitter, and then to carve out a different space where one had to show one's readers what one was doing. And through a certain honesty, through a certain self-revelation, reveal that one was making something up. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like trying to pierce the bad faith of those around us in order to appear truthfully naked in some ways as a teller of stories but then you know if if the notion is to examine as honestly as possible you know your relationship with the page your relationship with the world and and the the way you're talking directly to me uh, on a certain level wouldn't a non creative nonfiction narrative nonfiction what what is the purpose of the 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 fiction you know, it seems to me it's really important to what you're doing here. And I just want to try and unpack a little bit about why adding that, that, uh, that frisson of the fake uh, allows us to get to the truth. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I did not want to let go of the idea of invention because there are things that I as a writer of non-fiction and I have written some books of non-fiction there are some things that I cannot have access to and I cannot always have imaginary characters. For example, my narrator has a wife who is a behavioral psychologist. She has access to experiments which, for example, show that the reason why Celine Dion, your fellow Canadian, is played on loop in Walmart is that if you listen to sad songs, you need to cure your unhappiness and the way to cure your unhappiness is by buying more things. Now, unfortunately, I do not have a wife who is a behavioral psychologist. So I did take the liberty of creating a character who can deliver me such truths. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So essentially, the premise is somebody is writing a book about truth about fiction, about uh, inspired in, in some ways by what's happening in India, inspired in some ways by the election of, of Donald Trump. I mean, this seems to be certainly in the North American context, um, Donald Trump, I mean, that's all you got to say. And people immediately think fake news. They immediately start interrogating their notions of storytelling and reality and, and neighbors. Um, so maybe just, just tell what is the premise of, of, the, of the book? A writer is at a residency somewhere in Italy, from where he can see the villa occupied by George Clooney and Amal Clooney. He's having a good time. <laughs> He's trying to write a book. And then the pandemic arrives. And you will remember that the WHO, with the arrival of the pandemic, said that we were also faced with an infodemic. There was an assault. There was, an, there was a virus of fake news also that accompanied the pandemic. And so this guy decides that he's also going to address the mistruths that are being spread in the pandemic. And that really is the premise of the book. I should also explain very quickly that coincidentally, just like my narrator, I happened to read an interview with President Obama in the last days of his presidency. Trump was about to be to assume office. This was in uh, maybe second week of Jan. I can't remember now. He, and Obama told Michiko Kakutani of the New York Times that his daughter had read a book. She was interested in documentary filmmaking. She had read a book by Ernest Hemingway in which she had liked the line, Malia did, write the truest sentence you know. And I decided, okay, there are so many lies. I will write the most revealing lie. And I started that journal trying to note down the most revealing lie of the day from anywhere in the world. And that is a part of the premise that this writer in my book is also, he's, he's just trying to share with his reader the velocity of lies, which is, happens to be the chapter of, the title of one of the chapters too. And, and how did you curate your, your personal list of like, what, how did you decide what was the most revealing lie? What was the criteria you were, you were using, you know, because it seems to me that, uh, I mean, maybe always, but certainly during that time, you had a lot to choose from. There was a, you know, especially if you're, especially if you're including just the world, not just the the tweets of one strange orange man. Um, yes, yes, yes. That's a that's a good question. I the, the, there was one was spoiled for choices. Um, one one basic criterion that helped me was trying to get at something that was like a story. So, for example. 
when I, if, if I felt myself being, uh, how should I put it, being tempted by the veracity of this untruth, then I thought, well, there it is, something, something is being shown here. For example, there was a story that was dreamt up by an Australian prankster, which many of us here came to believe in the US, which was that in the early days of the presidency, Trump had his face pressed against the screen in his room watching the Gorilla, gorilla Channel because he wanted to watch gorillas. And the, the, the description was somehow so detailed <laughs> that the fiction of that somehow seemed to find traction in our hearts. And I thought, now this is what you have to be suspicious of. It gets to the fictionality and therefore the truthfulness of our lives, but is not true. So I thought I should note it down and comment on it. So, I mean, you know, obviously there's there's great humor in in so much of this, the 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 counterfactual arguments, the whole notion of of alternative facts just as a concept is 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 humorous and yet it's it's also dark. The the other I mean the the your narrator is also writing a book, uh very similar I think in some ways to the book that, that you chose to write, but but it's a, a slightly different take. And the question he's asking is one that seems increasingly important to, to many people around the world. It's a question about what would our neighbors do if if the jackboots are coming for us, essentially. You know, am I safe, right? And so what did the daily lies, what did those stories tell you about that question, the question your narrator is asking about your neighbors? Yeah. You know, there was an old line of Joan Didion's, which goes something like, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And that has been turned into a meme. And like most memes, it, mean, it is meaningless because the real complex truth that she was trying to get at was that we tell ourselves stories just to survive and we actually mislead ourselves. And what my research has really shown me and what I'm now convinced by is that we actually tell ourselves lies. That in many ways, in other words, most of us, I certainly don't exclude myself from this judgment, often live in bad faith, you know? It's very easy to lie to ourselves and to turn our heads away. Just the other day, the ruling party in India chose to, in many ways, persecute the, the child of a Muslim star. He's being punished because he is Muslim. Most of the Bollywood stars have remained silent on this. And that, and there itself is a sign. You know, people kowtow to power. And in India, unfortunately at the moment, most of the media has just, when asked to bow, they have begun to kneel and scrape. You know? So th that is what I found out. That will live, I mean, the term that I have begun to think about more and more since the writing of the book is bad faith. Even when we appear to be righteous and be telling the truth, we're actually practicing often bad faith. And how would you define bad faith in, in, in that context of, 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 I mean, I think it's obvious in the, the Tucker Carlson or, or the, the person getting on, you've got a, a wonderful character that, um, man, the description, the pusillanimous bag of, uh, forget, it's a colostomy, you know, walking, and it's like, oh, I read that line out loud six or seven times going, this is, I mean, this is, I felt this watching the news. So, 
there's that obvious of uh, somebody who is the huckster who is out there uh, trying to cause trouble uh, just to get attention. But what's the bad faith you're talking about that, that you see in yourself and your peers? Yes. Okay. 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 Well, first, let's identify the bad faith of those people. Those who appear to be very righteous are actually masking uglier motives, right? Let's say Tucker Carlson as a familiar mode. Um, what am I talking about when I, let's say, accuse myself of that? That some of the piety in which I might be clothing myself and how my, I might even be presenting my novel uh, is open to some sort of uh, criticism. Is certainly, uh, I mean, right now I'm talking to you about uh, fighting fake news, but I'm also, after all, isn't it true, promoting my novel, you know? I want all of you to be eager consumers, giving yourself and your relatives Christmas gifts in which you just go out to Indigo and buy my novel. You know, my mother-in-law lives in Canada. I hope she buys more copies. I want everyone. One thing I want to share is, you know, while researching behavioral psychology, and I mentioned this later on in my acknowledgments, I found out that grocers found a way to sell more soup by putting a sign above the soup cans saying, 12 only per person, you know? I want, I want, talking about bad faith, I want, I really, in the heart of my heart, I want to sign above my book saying, 12 per person only, you know? You're only allowed to buy 12 copies of my book. And that holds true for you, Sean. Okay, so, so your motives aren't pure, I guess. Uh, we can admit that. You're, 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 you're selling us, uh, you're, you've written a book, you want us to buy it. Now, I guess... One of the things that that it seems to me as a North American reader, everything begins in this story with with the election of Donald Trump. But you're also showcasing Modi, uh, Narendra Modi, and I think you could presumably have used Bolsonaro or or you know regard anywhere you're from in the world. Almost now, I was we were. The other day, trying to think of, you know, where can we go as soon as the travel restrictions are lifted and you can travel? And I was like, well, let's go somewhere that's not evil. And we were trying to come up with a country that is not currently in the midst of some kind of a fascistic internal <laughs> whatever. And my options are limited. There really is nowhere to go. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the relationship between, you know, the, the, what, the reality in India and the reality in America, the, 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 the Modi and, and, and I guess actually... In some ways, it goes farther back to partition. I mean, we think of all of these 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 troubles as as new, and and you could go farther back from partition to the American Civil War. The I mean, any you can you can take the this story feels new, but it's not new. Yes, I mean, uh, first of all, um, I'm just thinking now of your search for a holiday destination. I don't know, some place where populism has not taken root. And I mentioned that word in order to say that in India, in the US, and other places like Italy or Brazil or uh, Philippines or Hungary or Turkey, what we see is the, right, is the rise of a right-wing populism where demagoguery and therefore fake news, false claims, rules over people and leads people astray. So even before the rise 
of Donald Trump, I had started writing, in, in fact I had written a short piece which now appears at the end of my book and that was about the lynching of a Muslim man in India. A man being killed because he's suspected of eating beef. Um, so there you have it. A democracy strangled because your choices of food are not permitted to be legal. Um, and in fact, even the choice is itself misplaced because it was never verified that this man actually did have beef and not mutton in his fridge. Um, so I actually did start writing the book even before Trump came to power, but I was moved because, but the connection between, the, your question, the connection between them is this, Sean, that there's nothing more depressing than seeing videos of black men being shot by the police in this country, I mean the US, and comparable to that, the parallel to that, is the videos that always go viral of Muslim men being lynched on the streets of India. Uh, so that is the parallel. This violence that somehow seems in the hearts of the perpetrators to be legitimate and is exercised with maximum prejudice. So that is the parallel, boss. Depressing and one. It's really, it, but one of the things that I noticed in, in, in your book and, and in thinking about it, and tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, but it seems in many ways the violence you're describing in an American context is primarily carried out by proxy, by the police, whereas in the Indian context, it seems the community gets together and does it themselves. Um, there's much more hands-on. And when is, you, is, is, why don't you even talk about the difference between that, between the violence that is done on our behalf, that we're certainly complicit in. I mean, I think you're, you know, um, that, that level of the, the police brutality did not begin post-pandemic, right? We talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, this is not a new idea. Uh, certainly, I see it in my country um, that it's a fact. But so maybe what's, what's the difference between this violence that we're almost passively watching and, and consuming and we're maybe even fighting against it over Twitter? I'm, you know, maybe I'll do a strongly worded tweet against police violence or something and feel that I, I've done something. You know, that's the American or North American context. And then in India, it it's, seems a little more visceral or a little more active or a little more... What is harnessed is not necessarily just men with uniforms, but all of us. Yes. That is an important. I had not necessarily noted that, but you're right. You're not wrong at all. Um, the only way I can say something more, what I can say about it is that the police are complicit in that they do not intervene to stop the vigilantes at all. They have often been passive onlookers, and in some cases they have even participated. Um, but it is true that vigilantes that right-wing Hindu groups, Hindu mobs in India, feel um, armed with legitimacy. While in here, you know, you, maybe you have the killing of Ahmad Arbery, who was running on a street, and he was killed in Georgia. But otherwise, it is mostly the police that fire with impunity and kill. I don't know why that is so, um, other than to say, that in one country, maybe vigilantes do not feel, in this country, I mean the US, they do not feel uh, 
they can act with such impunity, while in India it is a free-for-all, which says, which, 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 which says something worse about India then, you know? I remember, I think you, in a, maybe in a previous interview or somewhere, wrote about the notion that, that often we see things in India first that, that are then coming this way. Yes, and I claim so, that. Because, you know, Indians, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to say that Indians, in, a, in an embrace of a uh, nationalist pride, will say to you, I know such Indians, I don't know whether you know them, but they will say, for example, well, wireless was first invented in India because if you read this ancient epic, blah, 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 or plastic surgery, our own prime minister has claimed that plastic surgery existed in ancient India because the Lord Ganesha has an elephant head, etc. So I was participating in that same frenzied celebration of my origins, and I was saying that what happens in India, because the sun rises first in India, Everything happens in India first, and you, you lagging Westerners, you only catch up with us, you know? So all the worst things that are happening in India will happen tomorrow in America. One of the wonderful through lines in the book is, is your author discovers 1984, which, of course, became a bestseller uh, um, after, uh, again, uh, you know, much like uh, Margaret Atwood's uh, uh, Handmaid's Tale is suddenly back in the news, everything old is new again. What was it about 1984 that, that I mean, it seems crucial to the kind of the, the structure of this book, the framing of this book. You seem to have found a lot of um, parallels and a lot of inspiration uh, and a lot of solidarity maybe with, with Orwell. You know, maybe just talk a little bit about how, how 1984 sure. plays. Yeah. One of the things I don't think your readers, your listeners necessarily will know is that George Orwell was born just half an hour away from my own village in eastern India. His father was the opium agent for the British because the Brits were, of course, interested in having Indians produce opium, which they could then send to China to subjugate a whole bloody population. Colonialism, man, you mentioned the partition. <laughs> Colonialism is so responsible for so many of our present ills, though I'm not going to only blame the Brits, because as one writer pointed out long ago in India, the Brits didn't teach us to tattoo on the bodies of the Muslims or the Pakistanis with words like, you know, our nation, etc. It is we who did it. Um, but to um, talking about Orwell, you know, I did see that piece of news that 1984 had was, was a bestseller on Amazon. And I was interested in understanding, because I was interested in understanding what is the role that literature can play to illuminate our conditions, I was trying to sort of, uh, you know, reverse engineer and understand, okay, let me read this book in order to understand what is it explaining about our times, you know? And it so happened uh, that just when the pandemic started, this wonderful writer, Ian Lee, who is at Princeton, started an online group to read War and Peace. And we were supposed to read 12 to 15 pages. So I quickly stole that idea and I had my, my, own, my own narrator also read 12 to 15 pages every day of 1984. And as I was reading it, I kept thinking of the fear that Winston Smith experiences, Orwell's narrator, 
protagonist, but I was also very much aware of something that was very common with what he did and I did, which was to keep a diary. Winston Smith is not allowed in that state to keep a diary. He keeps a secret diary, and I was interested in all those little features. And then there was this idea of love. He thought love would save him. And when he's first been tortured, he says, but I have not given her up, the woman he's in love with. But then he betrays her too. And I was interested in, it gave me, you know, you call it a through line, and that's exactly it. It gave me a way of tracking the degradation that power subjects us to when it has us by the throat. And I was interested, almost like a thought experiment, in seeing how much would he resist and what were the modes of resistance that my own narrator was going to find as he is swallowed by this pandemic of fake information. Well, I mean, you talk about love um, that seems to be, in some ways, you're talking around it a lot in, in the story, in the sense of, of I, I thinking just as you were speaking there about 1984, one of the most dystopian little fragments in the story is, is the narrator's sister allows during the pandemic um, her maid's daughter to, to stay in the home just to be safe and it's core. Everything's done, it's all good, but the neighbor's see this right and there's a there's the idea that maybe there's a special whatsapp group that has been just to discuss now what are we going to do about this girl causing trouble in the building and can you wh what is that kind of story what do the stories in here tell you about about the nature of love well i hope if and when my wife reads it i hope she doesn't think that it is all only talking around love rather than something more incisive or affecting we'll find out we'll find out that, that episode you mentioned, man, what can I say? My society, my Indian society is so riven by caste that the idea of having love for a human being, for a fellow human being, stops somewhere very close. If you're from my caste, I love you. If you're not, I, you're immediately suspected of something. And so, there were endless stories I discovered during this crisis where people were so contemptuous of domestic staff and how they were seen, domestic staff and minorities, were seen as the carriers of virus and why they had to be kept in, in human conditions. For example, industrial sanitizing, you know, industrial uh, liquids, which could burn someone's skin, being used to douse the whole group of migrant laborers. This kind of caste and class superiority actually exposes what, Zay, you know, to use Zadie Smith's phrase, contempt is a virus. You know what I'm saying? And I really fell for, fell in love with the honesty that I saw on the part of the simple, unlettered migrant worker you know, there's one who, as the Hindustan Times reported, left a little letter in his imperfect, ungrammatical Hindi, which translated meant, Dear Sir, please forgive me. I'm taking your bicycle. I have a handicapped child. I need to make... You know, people walking because of this badly thought out idea of a 
Yes. The context, you know, just for, for people that, that maybe don't know, but the context is when, when India, when Modi shuts it down for the pandemic, there's, it's, it's immediate and people are stuck often hundreds of miles from home with no way to get back, right? Everything is just shut and no down. No way to get back and no earnings because, you know, you're poor, you don't have earnings, your, your work has been shut down, your factory has been shut down, your workplace has been shut down, you have no money, you're stuck there, so you make a lonely trek back. People dying on train tracks because, you know, they are just, they don't know how to get home. So they are just walk, taking the path back on the train. And this, this, the honest account, this little letter someone left after he had taken someone's bicycle to carry his child back. I thought that against fake news, this honesty, radical honesty of one's life and one's conditions, and that is what a novel should also testify. So I did not alter anything. I just noted it down and presented it in a chapter that is just stuck. Like Orwell's book, which has a whole chapter, which is just an essay, I thought I should present the news, you know? So there are, there's a whole list of news. Well, and, and so let's talk about you know, the, the, another famous Canadian, you know, maybe not as famous as Celine Dion, but Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the uh, message, that's right. right? That's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, so what I'm getting the news on my phone um, from my television, from my neighbors, from my family is one thing. Getting my news, um, you at one point in your book ask us to Google a, a, a line of uh, um, it's hard to get your news from poetry, which I faithfully did. Uh, and, um, you know, so maybe talk a little. So what does it mean to you to have the news? Why, why do we have that chapter with 30 something little snippets uh, from from the narrator's diary that just kind of it's for me one of the most important parts of the book and you you do in a tongue in cheek way right invite us to uh, to skip it if we want but uh, you know um, this seems to me the the heart of it you're you're giving us in in thirty or forty snippets this a taste this is what we're metabolizing or what he's meta what your narrator is metabolizing and then, and then by virtue certainly we're we're consuming through the book. Talk about why? Why is that written? What's what's that for? We all have our phones. We've got our Twitter. It's obviously very very different for me to read it in your novel um, and for me to to read it on my phone. Tell me about that. First of all, Sean, your high school English teacher or your teachers in college have done a great job of making you a careful reader. I'm, I, 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 I know you have been joking around about some things, especially when mocking my own nationalist brethren, but here I mean it sincerely. Thank you for reading it so carefully. Um, two things. News comes to us very fast, and news and how we deal with news on social media is also very problematic. I found out from a research, while writing this book, a research done at MIT, that bots spread fake news. But bots spread fake news at the same rate as factual news. Only humans spread fake news six times faster than they do factual news. And I wrote back to them and asked, you know, WTF? And they said, well, because fake news is novel. And I thought, oh, I am writing a novel what can I say or do that will also have the same speed? And it was, I thought, if I'm telling stories, I should actually interrupt and tell the news or list it because we forget what we experienced two days ago in the news. Let the book also be a testimony. And I was trying, one of the phrases I have used there, 
um, borrowing it from Jimmy Fallon's show, is how to slow jam the news. I wanted to just slow, slow it down. You know, when Gandhi started his printing press, my narrator discovers, in South Africa, he wanted to slow down the consumption. He understood the importance of newspapers to connect people, to spread news, but he also wanted to slow it down. So he would stick in quotes from Emerson or Thoreau or Tolstoy and just make his readers slow down. And that's what I'm trying to do there. You know, have, present a little history, then have some other things, and then just slow it down. Well, you know, it, it's. I don't know if this is certainly accelerated during the pandemic, but I'll be reading along totally into it, just completely immersed, and all of a sudden I'll pick up my phone, and, and then I'm, before I even know why, I'm doom scrolling, or I'm just caught up in something, right? And it's like, oh, well. And it's interesting because I did not do that while reading your book. And I'm wondering if it's because you're, you're, you did something in the sense that you're, you're, you're hitting that part of my, my need for, oh, did you know that? Did you know that you're giving me these little um, um, stories in miniature, right? You t I mean, it's, it's about... Um, now, I mean, the other thing you're, I think that's important just for us to, to touch on here is it's the opposite of, of the truth is it's, you, you sort of get to this, the notion of science, right? And, and it, but science is storytelling. And so I guess, you know, the, the part that is for me so interesting is we're, we're not, there is, I mean, do you think there is such a thing as real fact? I mean, how do we, or, or, or does real fact have any meaning if there's not a story around it? Or, or how would we, I'm just, I, I'm hoping we can talk just a little bit about the, you've touched on it, and I think a few times, well, certainly in the book and, and in our conversation, but the notion that we're narrative machines, right? That we're taking all this in, that you're, so you, you give me these 34 or 35 or whatever, snippets of the news at the midpoint of the book. Presumably, I'm building a slightly different vision of the world from that than, than what your narrator built or that what you built, right? So we, each of us, we're taking in all of these same facts. We're, we're, we're coming out with something different. How important is that for you to, to understand when you're, when, you're, when you're trying to do something that is so big? I mean, this, this novel is so, in, in some ways, it, nothing much happens. And in, and in other ways, everything happens. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you, I think it's a very, very long, convoluted question, but there, there no, might but be I something in there. It. I appreciate it. Uh, the, the question that arises sometimes is, how do we oppose what is false? Well, we oppose it with truth. But the more complex answer is that even what we present as truth, let's say a science experiment, is actually a narrative. It's storytelling. And so the point that the novel is trying very hard to make is that it is, we are always in the land of, contestate, of, of contesting stories. And the reason why one story holds sway over another is that it is a more powerful narrative. We can embrace it, but we can also be skeptical of that. Um, and as to immersion, you know, I have seen this. I don't want to sound like someone born in the 18th century complaining about everything that has happened since. But that's what I feel when I look at my children, you know. They, even the experience of an emotion is never adequate or deep enough because everything is so rapid and changing and distracted. So that everything is punctuated only by something else and nothing is 
uh, prolonged, an engagement with the self doesn't take place. And I think, therefore, a novel, in my opinion, and this is a self-interested argument, but I genuinely believe it, a novel is the proper antidote to a world governed by Twitter. Because you cannot tweet a whole bloody novel. You can't forward it on WhatsApp, you know? You have to engage with it. If you're going to read it, you're going to immerse yourself. And so that's where I am. And um, yet, as you're, you're pointing out with, with, you mentioned kids, yeah, the, the notion that I would be, in most cases, talking to you with, you know, looking over my phone and taking you in as a peripheral character, this has become so, I mean, I see it now. It's not just kids. I, I see, you know, uh, uh, family members that are older than that doing it. And I catch myself doing it every now and again where we're sitting around and I'm, I'm doing this. What kind of hell is that on a certain level in the sense that it's, it's, we're, tr we're hiding from the very things that, that a novel is there to, to give us, right? And we've been going to novels since I think the minute they were invented. It seemed like the perfect form for us as, as narrative beings that want to know what is new, but what is new to me, not what is new in the sense that I don't need to know, you know, if there's another George, George Floyd kind of thing happening. Does it matter if I know it the minute it happens or if I find out an hour later or two hours later or read about it tomorrow morning, heaven forbid? Like, it's interesting, our relationship with it, whereas... Um, yeah, you're contextualizing it here in, in this way that, that is, is, for me, really, really interesting. And I guess to make it into to this long thing again into a, into a question is, is um, it feels so, your novel, A Time Outside of Time, feels so immediate, and yet it begins with partition. And yet it begins with the election of a president who is of the United States who is no longer president of the United States, um, so why, how does, how, but yet it's right now, it's right here at crowd. It, it's, it is speaking to me of this moment. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how that works, how, how, yeah. It is a question about the, it is a question about how the instant or the, what is, what feels immediate enters a longer duration. That had excited me. I was reading a novel by a woman called Olivia Lang, who's a British writer, and her narrator is getting married and someone at the wedding pulls out their phone and says, oh, Steve Bannon has resigned. And that interested me. You know what I'm saying? This idea that what we are living or experiencing entering the page of a literary fiction interested me. But I was interested not simply in the immediate being there, like what I said to someone was like blood on the bandage. I wanted that feeling in my literature. But I also wanted to see how it could persist, okay? The persistence, in other words, of the immediate, you know, when you are looking at your phone, what you see on your Twitter page, for example, will not be there till you do an enormous amount of scrolling back tomorrow, you know. And in my case, I wanted the immediate to coexist with what is not so immediate, with what is maybe forgotten, and also to juxtapose it with other contexts so that you see the immediate enlarged or in other contexts. So for example, my narrator's friend, one of his friends at uh, the artist retreat tells him that in Nigeria, for example, you can be in a bus and someone will say, look, look, this man stole my penis. And then the man who has been accused of stealing this man, poor man's penis will then be lynched immediately. 
a tire will be thrown around his and the mob will kill him. And what we have there is the juxtaposition of one vigilante act with another in order to say something which would not have been so revealed if we were dealing with one by itself. If we then also think about George Orwell and 1984, written in 1948, we have another historical context. And so what I'm hoping is that the, instead, the instance, the instant, instead of fading or disappearing from view, persists. Even while we have an idea of the instant, we have also its past behind it. That's what I think. I mean, what is a novel? A novel is always a struggle through form in order to arrive at some sort of truth. And that's what I'm doing here, struggling with form to find out, okay, what is the form that is right for the current moment? And so, and, and I guess the answer is that the time outside this time is, is whatever we can carve out. Here, I think right? so. Right? Is that, is yes. that okay? Yeah. Even while noting that it is so bloody difficult to imagine that other time because we are so consumed by this time. We are consumed only by this instance. Sean, do you mind if I read a paragraph? This will be an answer to the question you've just raised. <clears throat> when I was a boy in my hometown, and it had been raining for three days, it became so that it was no longer possible to have any consciousness of a time when it wasn't raining. Rain soaked through the walls, and slime grew on the inside, in the corners, and even on the ceiling. Phones stopped working. No newspapers came. Birds disappeared from the wet branches of trees. No question of going to school. There was no language outside of, it is raining outside. Water stood in the distant fields. It rushed down pipes and roared in the gutters. The roads became rivers in which people waded or swam. Bridge Bihari brought his cows onto the veranda at the back of our house. Mother would switch on the fans in one room to try to dry the wet clothes. It was all in vain. The snake found in the toilet was proof that the world outside had changed and the natural order had been turned upside down. Only rain was permanent. You could do nothing but wait. I'm saying all this because that is exactly what has happened to us politically. We cannot imagine, I cannot imagine sometimes, a time outside this time. The people who are in power must also be deluded enough to believe this. They must think that their power is eternal, that they will sit on the throne forever. And it is this thought that is their failing because it condemns them to missteps and error. Stay alert. You will hear the rain stop and the wind shift. The powerful will not be waiting for it, but that moment will come. It will mark the beginning of their doom, their end. Oh, Amitava, that's remarkable. And I guess I got to say to you, it's raining outside. So, <laughs> yes. so what, what does that mean for you? You finished this book. I have it in my hands. So, but it's, it's raining. So it what, is are you, what are you it doing now? What, 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 there's not, this is not, it doesn't feel to me that this is the kind of inquiry that would stop just because you're, you've, you know, you're still taking, you're, you've got the journal continues or does it yes. not? Does it change? It does. 
It does. It does. Same premise as before. Are you still writing? You know, one one uh, revealing lie, or or is that? It, it it has continued the same way because the lies have not stopped, my friend. Uh, the pandemic arrived, and then the rulers in India, for example, declared that it was over, that we had saved the world. That is what Modi said at the meeting of international leaders. That we had India had shown the way. We had saved the world, and then. As much as 10,000 people were dying every day. Hundreds of thousands have died. It's an obscenity that so many people died. And it is further obscene that the people who have been irresponsible and in many ways should be charged with the deaths of so many, people dying for lack of oxygen, those people will turn it. Because such is the power of narrative and such is the power of media, they will turn it into a success story and come back to power. And so I'm writing about that. Yes, I, I know. How to find a form, again, that is effective, that remains a search. And I don't think novels will save the world, but you have to be, have the power to say no. Mm. And you, would, you, would, you put your, would you put this work into, into that category? You know, we, there's been much said recently about the notion of essential workers, the people that we can't do without. Would, would, you, would you feel confident, having done this work now, that... that you know, and, and the conversations you're having with people about the book, the, you know, how, how, how it is creating a, a certain kind of dialogue in your life, in your world. Is it essential work, what you're doing? You know, there is a wonderful historian at Yale called Timothy Snyder, whose real work is on the rise of fascism, fascism in Europe. And he, thinking about this present time, said, you know, he wrote in one of his op-eds, and in fact, this is a short, very short book that I think should be distributed free on the subway. It's called On Tyranny, in which he says, read long form, read investigative journalism, read novels. Try to question what you, you know, uh, see in the news. And that, may, that is something I, again, immediately borrowed and put it in my novel, that, that, that advice from him. And I was half joking when I said, you know, novel writing as an essential service. But actually, that is my conviction. You know, I mean, again, it is a little self-serving, and I admit to it openly, candidly. Um, but I do think, I do think narratives have to be kept alive. Narratives of resistance, dissent, which tell stories, and which search for stories in more powerful ways. I mean, Chinua Achebe used to have this great line that till the hunters have their own, till the hunted have their own historians, all history will be the history of the hunters. And so the people who do not get to tell their stories, I think we have to keep fighting to have our voices heard. Wow. Well, I think that's a, a kind of a remarkable place to to pause our conversation. But I do, I do, I really, I'm curious if, if you're doing the same kind of work, I'm, I'm curious, you, you said the novel is a struggling with form, right? In, in large part. Do you know yet if what you're, going to do with your continuing uh, interaction with the news and with the world, is the form going to be similar or is it going to be something completely different? Do, are you, do you feel like, you're, like something's changed or, or what's next, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, the way I'm thinking about it is, again, inspired because all good things come from Canada. Michael Ondaatje had a book where he borrowed an epigraph from John Berger and the epigraph to his book was, no story will be told as if it were the only one. And what that allows me to think about is that you present a story and then you present its 
revision. And that is the form that I have taken, where one story is told, and then it gets revised, and then it gets revised, because there is no purchase on stable, unchangeable, unquestioned truth. So that is the form. I'm trying to work out how is it that one presents elegant but effective revision and a questioning. So one story challenged by another, challenged by another. Uh, that is the form I'm working with at the moment. I'm speaking to you from our, an artist residency at Yado, and that's what I'm trying to do every day. Fantastic. Well, I'm and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad you're at a residency, and that so that part of the world has come back. That's a sign of a sign of, of things to come. And there's a, there's a, an uncomfortable moment in the novel uh, at a at a, a writers' festival. You know, dealing with the questions from the audience and awkward questions that that remind the writer that that nobody in the room has done the necessary work. That they're wasting their time. And I can't wait to see that look on an author's face again of like, oh my God, really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what we have to look forward to. Um, thank you so much for making time uh, outside of your normal time for us today. And, uh, and, you are uh, amazing, for, man. For You're great. Well, thank you. You do thank not you ask the us. questions. You do not ask the questions that frustrate the author in my novel. <laughs> this has been the most thoughtful engagement and I can't thank you enough. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you. I'm very grateful for this book, and I and I hope as you as you as we mentioned earlier, there is a firm limit of twelve copies per customer, <laughs> and so we're we're gonna every bookstore in North America. This is very firm. What's beautiful though is for 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 listeners in India, it's fourteen copies. Uh, we allow two extra, uh, so that's that's my pitch. Oh my God! Thank you so much. All right. Thank sure. you. Bye. Take care. And that was my conversation with Amitava Kumar on his latest publication. A time outside this time. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. The only thing better than buying a great book is buying 12 of them from a great independent bookseller. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.